Alan here. We have our 100th episode coming out next week. This week, why this is episode 99, it's Talk Like a Pirate Day, September 19th, with special guest Gil Hova. But next episode, a pretty big milestone in the podcast, 100 episodes, and we want to make it as special as possible. So please, write in. Yeah, write in. You're probably thinking... Oh, I'm not cool enough to write into the Tuesday Night Podcast. They're so cool, and I'm not cool at all. But you're wrong. You're so wrong. You are cool. I know you're cool. Your mother told me that you're cool. And your father told me that I'm not. So get off of your stupid smart butt, and get on your smart stupid phones, and record something, or write something. Just send whatever you want. Stories are ideal. Questions, concerns, just send them to podcast at TuesdayNightGames.com. It's spelled with a K. Don't forget that. Captain Chessbeard's busy getting ready for this episode, so he wasn't able to say it's spelled like a K. Hey, yeah, but right in. We can't wait to disappoint you next week. But in the meantime, let's get on with the special Talk Like a Pirate Day episode with Captain Chessbeard and Gil Hova! Yeah! <laughs> Oi there, mateys! It be the Tuesday Night Podcast. The podcast about the stories we make while playing the games we love on, around, and even under the gaming table. We be talking board games. And this be a Captain Chessbeard episode. That be me. And today, I have a special guest, Gil Hova. Yeah, Captain, this is a nice cabin you got here. Yes, thank you for saying so. Many people don't appreciate it. There be a lot of misconceptions about pirates. One of them be that there aren't any more pirates, but there are indeed pirates to this day. Do you know any other misconceptions about pirates, Gil? No, my uh, my knowledge of pirates isn't that good. I, I barely know the difference between a pirate and a privateer. Are you a pirate or a privateer? I be, uh, let's be honest, I be a privateer. Oh, so your looting is all, like, sanctioned and uh, state-backed, huh? Yes, sir. You know the difference between a pirate and a privateer indeed, but that doesn't mean I'm above some things that are less than legal. But that's between you and me and the knaves. <laughs> all right, fair enough. So, you were going to ask me something and I totally failed to answer one of your questions. Please, please don't lash me or anything. No problem. Here is a misconception. Have you ever heard of... The pirate capital? No, I haven't. A lot of people think it be Tortuga. Have you heard of the pirate land of Tortuga, Gil? Of course I have, yes. Well, that'd be wrong. It'd actually be Port Royal in Jamaica. Hmm. Did you know that, Gil? I know it now. All right. A couple more questions and then we can move on because I think our listeners want to talk all about ye, not about me. And I'll get myself some rum. <laughs> all right. A captain of the pirate ship. How much power did the captain have on the pirate ship? I'd imagine the captain had a good amount of power, didn't they? Like pretty much close to total control? 
That was absolutely a myth there, Gil. Ah. It not be true, another misconception. In fact, the pirates, more so than the Greeks, practiced democracy, you see. In fact, all decisions were pretty much made by the entire crew. The captain himself be elected by the crewmates. Mm. The only time the captain had absolute control was during battles when they needed absolute military cohesion. I'm learning so much about pirates right now. It's important, but I'd be surprised because I was told that you be a captain of your own ship. You own your own company. I do. Oh, well, I can't wait to learn more about it. But here's a vocabulary test for you. Expressions, if you will. All right, hit me. Learn the ropes. What does that mean? I'd imagine that has to do with rigging, uh, learning about the rigging on a ship. You'd be correct, but that expression still be used nowadays. When it's used nowadays, what does it mean? Oh, it means uh, picking up on uh, how to do a certain task. Gil, you be a smart captain, so I'd be glad to be speaking with ye. It's important that brilliant minds share these brilliant ideas. Here's another expression. What does it mean if someone is three sheets to the wind? Oh, it means they're drunk. Very good, Gil. What does it mean? What are the origins? Oh, yeah, you gotta tell me, because I haven't unpacked the actual uh, story behind that expression. It be a pirate expression, you see. For the sails of the ship, if you let the ropes go, the sheets or the sails, if you will, would be flopping in the wind, and your boat would be out of control. The ship, oh, she be mighty hard to control when you have... Three sheets to the wind, much like when one person be inebriated. Hmm, got it. Okay, I'm learning so much. Do you have another one? Sure, here be another fact. Pirates, manly men most people think. Women, not allowed. In fact, have you heard the expression, a woman at every port? I've heard that expression, yes. Is it true? Were pirates the most manly of men, sexist, bearded hooligans, people that had nothing to do but rape and pillage and murder. That be true, or that be one of the myths? I know that uh, there was a famous Chinese pirate. Um, I forget her first name, but her last name was Ching. The board game Madam Ching was about her, and she was a legendary Chinese pirate. She still had to deal with all sorts of rules about what women could and couldn't do, but at her height, she commanded hundreds, maybe thousands of boats. She was pretty badass. You be correct, Gil. While women were greatly frowned upon on the pirate ship, a distraction if you will, most women still had to dress like men to make sure they weren't as distracting as could be. But could there be women on ships? Yes, sir. That'd be correct, Captain Gill. Thank you. One last vocabulary term, and this one most people do not know. Nay, have you ever heard of the term metallitage? Metallitage? Oh, that's a new one for me. I assume it doesn't have to do with the game company Mattel, right? Nay, it does not there, Captain Gill. No, in fact, the root word there is mate. Almost as in mate, tell, oh, tinge. Mm. But the proper pronunciation be metallotage. Like the game company, very smart. No idea, eh? 
No, no. I mean, I'm going to guess it has something to do with the process of tutoring a mate, like having a mate learn the rope, so to speak. <laughs> That's a fine guess. And you're not altogether incorrect, but it has to do with a type of marriage that happens aboard the ship there, Gil. Mm. Marriage on a ship. Not that uncommon, you see. But most marriages be between two crew members, mm. both of which be males. Very progressive. I like it. You be staying the course there, Gil. Pirates are known to be some of the most progressive sort there be. Because why would someone become a pirate? Not because of looting or murdering. No. It was to set aside the differences between personal beliefs and societies from which they belong. Which could include homosexuality, freedom of beliefs, and a higher order of democracy. Yes, you see. So maybe you won't be so quick to judge pirates and even privateers, for there were similar behaviors on privateer ships as well. Pirates is an overused generalization, Gil. All right, now consider me edumacated. <laughs> You're a good man, and I've heard nothing but good things about you, but how about I quench my thirst and uh, get me some rum? How's that sound? Have some rum and go to some, to some Tom Waits. Will do. I'll bring you some back. You not be a bilge rat at all. I'll be back. Hold on one moment. Hey, Gil. Hey, did you just see like this really huge character with a big beard down to his chest? Yeah. Yeah. He's got a really hairy chest. That's why they call him Captain Chestbeard. But oh. we got to be quick, Gil. All because right. Because Captain Chestbeard doesn't know. I heard you were coming on. Yes. And you and I were friends. Yes. Still are. We are friends, and I had to say at least hi. How's it going? Yeah. Oh, doing great. How about you? Fantastic. I got to ask you some questions before Captain Chessbeard gets back. I know our knaves want to know all about you and not so much about Captain Chessbeard. So here's the deal. I want to know your story. Your life in gaming, how did it start? Well, I started gaming as a kid. It's actually very sad. I didn't really have anyone to play games with. So it would just be me on my like bedroom floor with a bunch of game bits. A junior high school and high school, I found out about uh, the small company called Steve Jackson Games. This was during the mid 80s now. So, you know, their big games were Illuminati and Ogre. You know, this was all pre-Munchkin. They had just released this really audacious role-playing game called GURPS, which claimed to let you play in any setting, which I thought was really interesting and would probably be more interested in if I had, again, anyone to play with. I read about this other company called West End Games that did mainly war games and role-playing games, but they had a very funny role-playing game called Paranoia. Love it. Paranoia is amazing. GURPS stands for, is it Generic Universal Role-Playing System? Bingo. Boom. Got it. Cool. Yeah, Thank you. That's Continue, it. sir. It's funny. Uh, I loved reading Paranoia. I loved reading the adventures. I actually got to play it a few years ago and didn't really like it. But my tolerance for backstabbing and betrayal is not high. So it's not my kind of game, but I love the humor in it. Uh, I'm a Euro player to the core. Now, for the uninitiated, Paranoia, from my understanding and my memory, is that it's in the future it's hilarious because you play a whole series of clones. Yeah. And so you go out, it's expected that you're going to die, 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 but you just have a clone that comes back. Exactly. So the whole idea is you're in this uh, futuristic dystopia called Alpha Complex that is run by the computer. Uh, and the computer is uh, this all-knowing 
divine ruler who you must trust with your life. Uh, and the computer hates two things. The computer loves you, citizen, but the computer detests commies, mutants, and members of secret societies. That would be okay, except each of the players is themselves a mutant and a member of a secret society, hence the name Paranoia. They have to use their mutant powers secretly. They have to make connections with their secret society secretly without tipping off the other characters, which is very funny. And you're right, the game is so deadly that each player is assigned six clones at the start of each mission. That just encourages player death. I remember playing it in high school uh, with a guy who played a lot of D&D. Within the first five minutes, you know, his character didn't do the required morning calisthenics. So I killed his character and he was like, well, you can't kill my character. I'm like, you've got five more. You're fine. <laughs> it was pretty funny. But you were talking about how you became the master of your own gaming company. Yeah. So let me let me fast forward a little bit. I was always into video games. And in my early 20s, uh, now we're talking about probably the mid 90s at this point. You know, I figured that if I was going to learn more about this game design thing, because I'd wanted to be a video game designer, I should find out about these board games. I tried to find some of these board games in my youth that I'd played 10 years beforehand. And I found out that Steve Jackson Games had this uh, had a new game called Munchkin, so I learned all about it. And, and then I learned that there were these new kinds of games called Euros that people were talking a lot about. <laughs> Probably around 2000, I think, is when I went to my first game convention. I played Settlers of Catan, and it was okay. I wasn't blown away by it. But somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, we need an extra person for this game we're playing. What's the game called? And he said, Puerto Rico. You're going to love it. And I played it, and I adored it. It was the first time I played a game that was not about betraying people, backstabbing people. It didn't take forever. It was just about wonderfully juicy strategic decisions. Yet, it didn't have the learning curve that a game like chess did. It just had this open economics, and it had compelling, fascinating choices. And it showed me that I actually liked board games more than I liked video games. Obsessed with Puerto Rico, I started learning about more kinds of games like Puerto Rico, picked up games like Princess of Florence and Prime primordial soup, and uh, slowly realized that I preferred board games to video games. But now the plan was no longer to study board games until I had a better idea of video games. It was, okay, I'm just going to try to design board games. Problem was, I was terrible at designing board games. I had no idea what I was doing. I found some fellow board game designers. I found the closest meetup I could find for other board game designers was in Albany, which was about three hours away from me. Where did you live at this point? At this point, I was in New York City. You born and raised a New York native? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty much a New York native. I was born in New York City. I grew up on Long Island, went to college in Boston, went back to New York City, lived in New York City for a while, then moved to New Jersey, lived in deep New Jersey for a while. And now I live in Jersey City, which is pretty much the border between New York and New Jersey. So it kind of has elements of both. And I love Jersey City. I think it's a great place to live. But yes, yeah, so at the time, there weren't that many places for designers to meet up. Then I found out that the, a few designers had set up a meeting in in New York City. Every month I went to New York City to play test my games. Any names in that designer community that I or our knaves would recognize? Oh my gosh, uh, actually quite a few. One of whom was an aspiring designer in Arizona named Seth Jaffe, who has since went on to design Eminent Domain and is now a full-time, well, like close to full-time developer with Tasty Minstrel. 
Let's see, Brett Gilbert posts a lot on those forums. Now with Matthew Dunstan, co-designer of games like Elysium. So in the New York City area, in the New York City game design group, it's pretty much been run by this guy named Josh DeBonis, who only has one board game so far to his credit. It's a game that Mayday just released, and it's this um, really cool game of building animals, like pretty much capturing animals and having the fight, which is totally unlike a certain IP that may sound like. Josh is best known in the video game world for making a 10-player arcade cabinet game that's a two-team, five-player team game called Killer Queen that's pretty much a combination between StarCraft and Joust. And it's a really, really cool game. I love Killer Queen. It's yes. one of my favorite arcade because I would go to XOXO Fest every year. They always have Killer Queen and it's now in their arcade in Portland, Oregon. And oh my, it's amazing. And you guys have it in New York. That's right. That's where it came from. Really quick, Killer Queen for the Uninitiated is an arcade machine that plays five against five. Someone plays the part of the queen, and then you have four B workers that help you, and there's several ways to win the game. You can go ahead and race a snail across the end, you can get all the jellies, or you can kill the opponent's queen. Now, the cool thing is the opposing team is on the opposite side, so it's five versus five. It's a big-ass arcade machine. The design is absolutely beautiful because those three victory conditions are so delicately balanced that you'll see one team sneak an economic victory uh, that is getting all the honey just before another team gets the military victory, which is defeating the other team's queen three times. And I think the best part, this is fascinating game design to me. There is a third way to win, which is the snail victory. There's a snail on the bottom of the screen and you can hop on the snail as one of the bees and ride the snail to the opposite end of the screen. And being a snail, it's going to go really slow. And Josh has told me that the snail violates everything he knows about game design, because all you're doing with the snail is you're pushing the joystick to one side. And yet it's one of the best parts of the game, especially when one team is about to get a snail victory and it, the game usually draws a crowd. So the crowd starts chanting, snail, 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 snail. And that's when the other team looks, oh crap, you know, there's, we're about to lose. The snail's almost, a, and you can either knock the uh, the snail rider off the snail, or a team can actually throw their drones in front of the snail. The snail will devour the drones, which slows the snail even more. It's really intense when you're the snail rider, because you're so paranoid, because you can do nothing, and all you're thinking is, should I get off the snail? Should I get off the snail? Oh my goodness, someone's gonna kill me. Someone's yeah. gonna kill me. So yes, that's Josh. Josh runs New York City Playtest, NYC Playtest, and he's co-designer of Killer Queens. So also in that group, Eric Zimmerman, who designed Quantum and the metagame. For a short time, we had Travis Chance, who lived in New York City for a while. He's since moved to Indianapolis and founded First Action Phase Games and now Colossal with a K Games. Steve Finn drops by every once in a while from Dr. Finn's Games, a designer of Biblios. Michael R. Keller, a designer of City Hall and Captains of Industry, very, very underrated games um oh my gosh i'm sure i'm missing people i mean you're pimping a lot of names man you're giving a lot of people props well it's a great group uh, we have some two designers in that group now that you should really look out for daniel newman he designed ahead in the clouds from button shy games and he's gonna have a bunch more games coming out soon so he's a really really good designer and ryan courtney who has a game called pipeline that's going to be coming out soon he's a fascinating designer because he makes very heavy games with really cool intricate 
good decisions. But anyway, I'm sorry. We're supposed to be talking about me. <laughs> so let, let me let me. This get is why in- you're such a nice guy, though, because <laughs> you're so affable and you care about everyone. You're way more popular than me, sir. And oh. it's because you give all the credit to everyone else. It's amazing. Well, I, I mean, I, I feel like I, I have to. I mean, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for others. So I have to make sure that they get the spotlight as well. So here I was. I was taking my, frankly, horrible games to the NYC playtest group. I would drive to Protospiel every once in a while. Uh, and I had a full-time job, so I was doing that. And I saw myself as a hobbyist designer. I finally got a game published. My first game, Prolix, came out in 2010. Z-Man released it. That was the year that Z-Man released like 40 games in one year. So unfortunately, Prolix didn't really do well. It had a lot of competition. In 2014, Battle Merchants came out. That was a game that you helped fund, Alan, which I'm uh, very happy about. Yes, absolutely. I'm a Kickstarter addict, but yes, it's a good game. Solid. But I'm very thankful for that. So Battle Merchants came out in 2014. uh, And again, at the time, I was working a day job, but I was starting to not be into the day job. You know, I was really just not feeling it. I was feeling like my life was in design. Yet at the same time... My job was asking more of me. You know, my job wanted to identify... I was working at Audible.com at the time. I'd worked there in all for 13 and a half years. So I'd been working there a while, but I became a programmer there, and they wanted me to identify as a programmer. They wanted me to see myself first and foremost as a programmer. I would work 50 to 60 hours a week, come home, and then I would code some more in my spare time because I was so obsessed with coding. And there's a lot of people who do that, and I think that's awesome, but it's not me. It's just not where my heart is. In April of 2014, I got really, really incredibly lucky. I got an invite to the Gathering of Friends. Nice. That is a um, an invite-only convention hosted by Alan Moon, a designer of Ticket to Ride. And going there just it it pushed me to the next level having so many people like whose lives were games in one spot really helped push me at the time i wanted to pitch my game i was working on this little game about running a tv network it was called primetime at the time and i was showing people the game people enjoyed it but i showed it to a few publishers the publishers i wanted to like it weren't interested in it which is a shame uh, another publisher really wanted it but they said we want to change the scoring though we want to make the scoring more interactive. I thought that would slow the game down too much. I just wanted to be, this show gets you this many points and that's it. I noticed that there were way more designers than publishers in that room. And then I started thinking, well, how come I can't publish? Like I'd always told myself, publishing is really hard and it's not for me. It's not something I should do. It's not in the cards. I should just pitch, pitch. And I realized maybe that's not true anymore. I mean, with Kickstarter, with fulfillment centers, I didn't have to fulfill on my own. I could have the game sent to this third-party warehouse who would fulfill on my behalf. So, you know, maybe I can do this. Obviously, Primetime became the network's thankfully became a very big hit it's a really solid game something to be very proud of thank you in fact yeah are you willing to enter an elevator and give an elevator pitch so let me tell you about my elevator pitches to me an elevator pitch has to be really short so for me elevator pitch 15 seconds all right well let's see if you can do a 15 second elevator pitch okay okay entering the elevator You are a TV network executive in the networks. You start the game with a little bit of cash and three terrible TV shows, and you're trying to get the most viewers after five seasons. That was less than 15 seconds, sir. Very good. But that's the idea of an elevator pitch. With an elevator pitch, the idea is not to tell you how to play the game. It's not to give the rules. What you want, I'm interested, tell me more. 
how dare you, sir, come onto my podcast and tell me how to do... But I totally agree. <laughs> we just suck at it. Very well done. Thank Way you. to school us on our own podcast because I totally agree. <laughs> it's something to aspire to. Being able to do a pitch in a minute is useful. The reason I like the 15-second pitch is I do a lot of booth work. And a lot of people will come by and say, what's this game about? They don't want a minute. They want 15 seconds. Truth. So you have to get their attention as quickly as possible. One thing I notice that you're really good at with your booth setup is you have standing tables. That is really smart. A standing table is awesome. Thank you, sir. Because when you have a standing table, that means there's less friction. All a person needs to do is walk up because when you have seats, that means there's this extra step they have to commit to. They have to commit to sitting down. Whereas when they just walk up, they're already there. You're removing a little bit of friction. So in that environment, you need that 15 second pitch. I hope Sean is listening to this because (laughs) thank you for validating my booth layout decisions. So thank you very much, Gil. If you have a longer game, like with the networks, we have chairs and we have longer tables for that. But for Wordsy and for Bad Medicine, which I'm hoping to reboot soon, those are totally circular table games. Gil, Bad Medicine. In Bad Medicine, you are a pharmaceutical company and you have to come up with really funny and really horrible pharmaceutical drugs. Wow, you're really good at that. I've done a lot. Prolix, you changed recently. You fix it up and now its new name is... Wordsy. Wordsy is a game where long words actually help you. So those short two-letter words from Scrabble will not help you one bit. Wordsy's a game for longer words. Man, you're good at this. Damn. Again, I've done it a lot. (laughs) I think that's important when you're designing a game because you have to find that soul of the game. Absolutely. So this is one reason why I like to publish my own games because there's this overlap between a good game and a good product. And I think if you have a good game that is also a good product and that overlap is big and strong, then that's what you want to hit, you know? And that's what I really like about publishing my own games because I can just approach it from both directions. I can work on this as a game designer and a game publisher because as a game publisher, you know, I don't just have games, I have products and product design is really important and really hard. So that pitch is, you know, I'm looking at it as both a designer and a publisher. Complete control. But Gil, you haven't told us the most important thing. What did you name your company? I named my company Formal Ferret Games. So what can we expect with Formal Ferret Games? What is the company's mantra? Formal Ferret Games is the outlet for Gil Hova, publisher of games that are both funny, approachable, but strategic and interesting. (laughs) You're so good. You're so good. That that one, you put me on the spot, so I had to like... um, I had to get you. You normally don't pitch your own company. But you did fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. No problem. Let's continue with the story. So you decided Kickstarter networks go. Well, first Kickstarter bad medicine. I started with bad medicine and that was intentional. I actually had the networks mostly done at that point, but I wanted to start with a smaller game because if I was going to make mistakes, I wanted to make them on a game that wasn't the network's. Uh, And I made mistakes with Bad Medicine, which is fine. That's why I made Bad Medicine, because I wanted something that if I screwed up, it wasn't a horrible thing and it wouldn't totally sink me. The two biggest mistakes I made with Bad Medicine, first off, when I sold it into distribution, I did not take shipping into account. 
I sold it to a distribution consolidator. I didn't realize they would pass the cost of shipping on to me. What I do now, I only pay for shipping if they order $500 or more of product. Because I had companies ordering like $30 of games, $60 of games. And the shipping just ate me up. Especially when you're going through a consolidator and you now have a 65% discount instead of a regular 60% discount. So I got a tiny check out of that and that wasn't enough to reprint. Which is why I had to go back to Kickstarter for the expansion. That expansion failed because of my second mistake. And my second mistake was I had a bunch of stretch goals with Bad Medicine and I put all the stretch goals in the box. Dude, we made the same mistake with Two Rooms and a Boom, so so yep. welcome to yep. the Mistake Club. Exactly, exactly. And when I priced the reprint, I assumed I was putting all the chipboard right back in there. And what I should have done is all the chipboard should have been a separate product. So that way the game is just cards and it's 20 bucks. And the chipboard is 10 additional bucks, and that's that. Instead, I sold the whole thing for 30 bucks, so here I am selling a quick party game for $30, which is, that's a hard sell. Yeah. It's a really hard sell. But that wasn't the end of Formal Ferret Games, though, was it? No, it was not, because then came the networks. Networks hit Kickstarter. Since I had that extra year, I put a ton of polish, because I actually had, like, male and female stars, and that was problematic for a bunch of reasons, let alone just reinforcing like a gender binary, which is not really the way I like to go. You know, I, I totally, I just, you're a progressive man. You're a New Yorker, sir. Exactly. Yeah. So, so the, once I said, Oh, you know, I instead of having two different genders of stars, I just have stars, you know, there's all these changes I made, but the biggest one was a BGG con of 2014. That was a huge one because I played, <laughs> I played it with Grant Rodiak and Michael R. Keller. And Grant said, this is okay, but it needs, it just needed something else. And I realized the game was really super grindy. So I had a play test with two other players and I very nervously introduced a new rule. And I said, if you ever get three shows of the same genre, you get a bunch of viewers and you get either stars or ads. And we played it and suddenly the game, that was the point at which players went from, okay, I liked it. It was pretty good to like, when's this coming out? I really want this. Number one, your decisions from season to season, like there was a strategy to it. And when I say strategy, I don't mean thought. I mean, very specifically, you are working towards something season over season. Right. Like I see people making take that games or party games. They're like, well, yeah, there's actually some strategy to it. I'm like, no, there's no strategy. And that's okay. Your game doesn't need strategy. If it's a tactical game, so be it. Let it be a tactical game. But this game did need a strategic element and that gave it the strategic element it needed. Also, the game had felt grindy, but now that you have these genre bonuses suddenly you get this injection of resources just when you needed them and you could like jump and there was an explosiveness to the game now that it really really needed like i said that was the point where people were suddenly like oh i, I really want this game now that turned it from a pretty good game to if i may say so a great game from an eight to an eleven. Oh, i like it <laughs> But that's not the end of the networks, because you've got something going on with the networks right now. So we have listeners listening, and I'm totally your shill right now. But if people are thinking, man, I want to get a hold of the networks, they have a golden opportunity right now. Don't they, Gil? That's right. I have a Kickstarter up as we speak for the month of September for the network's executives. And that is the expansion, the first big expansion for the networks. And if you haven't played the base game, don't worry. You can get the base game in this Kickstarter. Boom. There you yep. go. So exciting. <laughs> so in the executives, you now run the network with a specific executive by your side. And that executive can give you all sorts of powers. 
executive might give you the power to ignore time slots or might give you the power to get a lot of money, but they also have liabilities as well. You can see I haven't practiced that one as much. Yeah, because it's that new. Yeah. You want to get in while the getting's good when it's brand new so you can be an early adapter. It's new, but I've been testing it for like a year. It is tested. Uh, That's the thing. It's asymmetric, you know? And for those that don't realize what an asymmetric game is, you're probably not listening to this podcast. But what (laughs) it means is that different players are basically playing different games that have a huge Venn diagram overlap that influence each other. Like the go-to one that people normally think of, I think is ladies and gentlemen, where half the players are playing the ladies and the other half are playing the gentlemen and they're playing two separate games, but what the men do affects the ladies and what the ladies do affects the gentlemen. And to properly enjoy that game, you really want to mix it up. So you want a bunch of men playing the ladies, you want a bunch of ladies playing the men, and that's how the game gets really fun. I've never played it any other way, to be honest. (laughs) I've only played it twice, but both times it was... Ladies want to be the gentlemen. Gentlemen want to be the ladies. Mm-hmm. When you first hear about the game, it sounds, you know, it sounds kind of skeevy and sexist, but when we actually play it, it's really subversive. Yes. So talk about asymmetric games, though. Asymmetric games can be anything from like a mild, every player has a little power that they can use. For example, Scott Alms games have those, like games like Harbor. Yes. They're slightly asymmetric, and that's not pejorative. You know, I'm just showing like a range of what asymmetry can be, because Harbor, I think, is a really cool design. But all the way, the other end is a game like Vast, for example, and in Vast, you pretty much are playing, everybody's playing their own game, but your moves absolutely have impacts on everybody else. The trade-off is, while Vast has really fascinating and compelling gameplay, the downside of Vast is when you start you're teaching four or five different games based on how many people are playing. I would not suggest learning Vast with five new players because you have to learn five new games. It's really slow. But once you learn it, my gosh, is it a good game. So what makes this asymmetric? Because every executive has their own ability? Sure, now that we're not in the elevator anymore, I can unpack this a little more. So for example, you can be Mr. or Ms. Flicks. And so if you're Flicks, you now run a streaming service. So you no longer have time slots. All your shows are always considered to be in their correct time slot. Ooh. Yeah, which is a totally different way of playing, except the downside is your viewers are now very used to the kinds of shows you put out and it's very sensitive to change. So if you ever change genre within the same time slot, you lose a viewer. It's a really interesting network to play. Another executive called Beeb. Beeb runs a state-sponsored TV network. So the thing about Beeb is they actually get $5 million extra when they drop in budget because they all have all this license money from the public to play with. Then I'll give you a third and a fourth. The third one is cable. So if you're cable, you're like HBO, you get a really fat contract to start the game. You're going to start with between $16 million and $20 million depending on your starting order. So you start with a ton of money. Then when you drop in budget you may only get viewers. You may not get money when you drop in budget. Ah. So you're getting all your money at the start of the game. And if you play it right, you pretty much get both the money and the viewers. The last one is my favorite. I I have to admit, I do have a favorite network, and that is Telethon. Okay? (laughs) And I'll lead with Telethon's downside. Telethon cannot hold ads in their green room. But their upside is once per season, they may hold a telethon. They may ask two other players for $2 million each. Any player who gives them $2 million gets a sponsorship token, which, of course, has a picture of a tote bag on it. (laughs) 
And a sponsorship token lets you do all sorts of cool things. Telethon, uh, if the player does not give the two million to Telethon, then Telethon keeps the sponsorship tokens. And I made the sponsorship tokens in a way that they really help Telethon. They just need to make sure that they keep the supply of sponsorship tokens coming, just like a, a real Telethon. And the other thing I like about this network is it really changes the game for everyone. It doesn't just change Telethon, it changes everyone. The third cool thing about it is the role play for this network is so <laughs> funny, you know, because you get, no, no, you called me last week. Can you take me off your mailing list? You know, that sort of thing. It's, it's right. really, really funny. Yeah. It sounds like it's a great example of asymmetry because certainly with this expansion, yes. everybody is playing pretty much a different game with similar mechanics. I also like Telethon because it seems to increase the interactivity then as far as yes. having to ask other players. So that's really cool too. Very much so. A lot of these uh, a lot of these executives, you really have to pay attention to what everybody else does. That's what I like about this expansion is it really amps up the depth and the replayability of the game because the base game is fun and I think there's a lot of replayability in it. You cannot play the same way twice in a row. You have to adapt your way to play to suit your executive. Right. I'm really happy with what it adds, and the people who've played it are really happy with it, too. So I'm very thrilled to see the response to it so far. Gil, I think I hear Captain Chessbeard shambling back, but really quick, you're not just a game designer. What else do you do? You don't just own Formal Ferret. Oh, yes. I'm also a host of a few podcasts. First, I'm a host on Ludology. Jeff Engelstein was kind enough to invite me onto the show as a permanent co-host earlier this year. I had to fill very big shoes because Mike Fitzgerald decided to leave the show because he felt he had said everything he, he needed to say, and he wanted some fresh blood on the show. So... The last few shows we've done have been a lot of fun. We just did a show with uh, Scott Nicholson talking about escape rooms, uh, comparing escape rooms to board games and really deep diving into the design behind escape rooms. And Scott's a fascinating guest. Gil, you're the king of name dropping because I am going to have to hashtag and link all <laughs> these names. And oh, you've you're given me so much homework to do. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but got to mention the other podcast, the other game design podcast I'm on, which is Breaking Into Board Games. And in Breaking Into Board Games, it's me, it's Ian Zhang and Tony Miller. And we look at the board game business and breaking into the board game business from different points of view. Tony looks at it from a game designer's perspective. Ian looks at it from a game developer's perspective. And then I look at it from a publisher point of view. All of us have done various things like Ian has done design. I've done a lot of development work and obviously I do a ton of design as well. But, you know, we, we focus on those hats, publisher, development, design. We often have guests on the show. Sometimes we talk amongst ourselves. Uh, and it's a really interesting show. Our most recent episode, we interviewed Tiffany Kyrez, who is a, a vlogger, uh, and she is amazing. So that episode came out so well. So I'm really happy with that. Uh, one more podcast to mention, which is a non-gaming podcast. Uh, I actually co-host Cohabitating with my girlfriend, Carrie, and it's just about being a couple. That's it. And what we're into. It's more of a personal podcast, but Carrie's a lot of fun, and she she really uh, makes it a very fun podcast. Uh, uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Sorry about that there, Captain Giruna. Oh, how's the rum? I had some mixed rum. And it was terrific. That's good to hear. It be time to talk about ye. What be the name of ye's ship that you, Captain? That would be the SS Formal Ferret Games. Well, that's uh, all I think anyone wants to know about ye. How would our listeners get in touch with ye? 
Well, I'm on Twitter at Gilhova, G-I-L-H-O-V-A. That's a V as in Victor. I'm also on Instagram at the same handle, at Gilhova. You can find me on Facebook. Probably best way to get a hold of me at Facebook is to like Formal Ferret Games. You can also go to my website, gil.hova.net, to find out stuff I'm thinking of, like long-form board game thoughts. And you can sign up for my mailing list there, and I send an email out every month. And once again, if you go to Kickstarter and search for Networks Executives, there's my most recent game. Or you can go to networksgame.tv, and that's got a link to it, too. Would be this networks that you speak of. So imagine a magic box that has people inside it entertaining you. Uh, This is a game about that. Oh, fascinating. You're a mystical scurvy buccaneer there, Gilhova. (laughs) I try. Will that be all the time we have? And with that being said, I believe that if you want to write us, you should, because coming up next week is the 100th episode of this here podcast, and we want to hear your comments, your questions, and your stories. So please, write us at podcast at tuesdaynightgames.com. That's spelled with a K, of course. And with that being said, I believe... This episode is... Finished!